Welcome to STAG Symposium. We have another very special guest for you today, Caroline Tatnall, who's been teaching at DeMatha now for a year and a half, but she has a very interesting educational journey that she's going to tell us about today. And uh, Dr. McMahon, I'll let you introduce her a little bit further. Yes. Thanks, Michael. Uh, so Caroline came to us through Notre Dame's ACE program, where we've had a couple of uh, people uh, come and uh, visit us. And my first interviews with her were, she was in California and I was in Maryland and we're doing this over a kind of Zoom. So she really came to us sight unseen. But one of the extraordinary things about it was she volunteered to start before school actually started. And so she jumped in on the Serfois summer seminar before she was actually teaching in classes. But one of the things that was really interesting to us was in her background. Caroline, could you tell us a little bit about your your undergraduate degree in from Clemson is in biology, the chemistry minor, but you also have a Spanish minor and you put that to use almost right after you left Clemson. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I did. I um Majored in biology and then decided to pick up a Spanish minor uh, after doing some traveling abroad over the summer in between my freshman and sophomore year of undergrad. Uh, some family friends of ours that my parents had hosted when they were newlyweds, they live in Austria, they're Viennese, and I had met them and met their kids and saw how their kids were are fluent in English and also in Austrian and learning other languages as well. And I thought, you know, I could actually maybe try to learn Spanish instead of just taking Spanish classes. So I picked up the minor. And by the end of my undergraduate degree in biology, I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it yet and felt like it would be the perfect time to move abroad for a year or maybe longer. And the the easiest way to move abroad is to teach English. That's kind of the the biggest thing that we can offer, I think, to a lot of other countries is our ability to uh, be a, a native English speaker in another in another country. So I taught at a bilingual primary school in Madrid. It was a they have from the age of three to sixth grade is their primary school. Uh, so they have some kids who are there from three until they're about eleven or twelve years old. Uh, and I taught fifth and sixth grade. So I had fifth and sixth graders and we taught them English and we also taught them science. And this was kind of interesting. Their science course, they had basically a social science and a natural science book. And they would each unit, they would just go from social science to natural science and then flip back again. So basically the same the same science class, but you would go from more of a history, social studies to a natural science mm. curriculum and they would just flip flop. Um but I think that that time abroad, especially in the classroom, uh, taught me to – I got to do all the fun parts of teaching. I got to go in every day. I got to work with students and work with other teachers. I didn't have to deal with parents 
Um, and I, I wasn't really dealing with maybe administration or, uh, doing the preparing of materials and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I was more asked to, to help out in certain ways. So can I ask you a question about that? Be, um, lots of times native speakers, because they don't recall how they learned the language, can have a hard time figuring out strategies and you hadn't been in education right. major or minor. So how did you deal with with learning that, or did they give you some help and preparation? I would take their textbooks, the fifth and sixth graders' textbooks, and I would look at how the textbooks were created to teach them English. And it was it was fascinating to learn some of the structures of English that we're never taught because we just learn it by our parents speaking it to us. Um, for example, like the rules for a comparative versus a superlative is based on the number of syllables in a word and whether or not you add like an ER ending or you put more in front of it. I had never learned that before mm-hmm. because we just naturally hear the sound of it. Um, and it's, it's interesting having to then teach it as a rule to somebody who is, who is learning the language. Wow. So tell us a little bit about living in, in Madrid. Uh, and did you get a chance to travel through? through Spain while you were there? I had a lot of opportunities to travel. Another perk of the job was only working four days a week. So I had a three-day weekend every weekend. Uh, So that gave me a lot of time to travel. And I mean, one of the biggest takeaways is the, the lifestyle that's different. They like to say that Americans, we live to work and Europeans work to live. Uh, So a little bit more of a separation and also just an unreliability of sorts in terms of transportation, maybe things not showing up on time when you were expecting them to, or the metro's broken down and you'll have to, you're going to get in later. Uh, but also I think more of an understanding about how things happen and, and we just move on from it. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk just for a second about uh, landscapes? I'm going to ask Mike to talk about, because much of the landscape of Spain is very different than mm-hmm. us, and I think landscape can teach us things. So, Mike, could you tell us a little bit about being in the Southwest? And yeah, it's interesting. Um, you talk about landscapes, and, and as Caroline was talking, one of the things I'm going to ask her later on is the major difference between teaching students in Spain versus teaching students here. But I think everything forms our experience as humans, right? And uh, when I'm on the East Coast, I feel constantly claustrophobic. Mm. The trees are on top of me. Um, you you can only see portions of the sky. And that's because I'm from Arizona. And one of the things I love about Arizona is when I look out into the horizon, I see a mountain. And the questions I ask are, has anyone been on that mountain? Like, when's the last time? It just seems, it, it, it makes the, it gives the brain an impression of adventure and, and something that's endless, like a horizon. And I feel that that definitely can form a person. And you you relate to certain you re, you relate to certain landscapes and and on the East Coast I feel like I'm in exile. Mm-hmm. This is where I'm supposed to be, even though I, to be honest, I love to matha, mm-hmm. but I wish I could take it and and put it in the desert. Um, and for me, that sets my brain right. And I remember I would go up on Mount Lemon, which is in Tucson, and I would find this one place, and I looked out, and as far as I could see, there was no human civilization, and that just reset me. And I find that very difficult here to find those places and those escapes. And I talk, I have those conversations with my students all the time about place and space and um, place is so important mm. as I well. Th- yeah. So uh, 
one of the things when I visited Brophy Prep, which is in Arizona, it's yeah, a Phoenix yeah. Jesuit school. I was there on a day, and as we're walking around, the cafeteria was about the size of Damatha's, but they have about 1,200 students. So I said, Where, where's the other cafeteria? Mm. They said, there's, there's no other cafeteria. I said, well, how many lunches do you have to get people through? They said, oh, we all eat at the same time. I said, how is that possible? They said, well, people eat outside. Mm -hmm. I said, every day of the year? <laughs> and they said, yeah. They yeah. said, well, maybe once 10 years ago, you know, we had a bad day and we couldn't yeah, like do a that storm or a and rain there, no lockers because nobody wears a coat and rain. they didn't uh they were a one-to-one -one school a long time ago yeah. so there was no textbooks to carry around right and it began i began to think about how geography mm. affects the culture and and i will tell you i've had two wonderful experiences i stood uh, at the top of the mountain in masada in mm -hmm. uh israel and I could feel the sort of sacredness of that yeah. place. And uh, when I the first time I stood at the at Greasy Grass or Little Bighorn, the battlefield uh, there, and you have a sense of what what went on. I mean, sometimes space, you're right, has this profound mm. effect on the way we we think. Did you have any of those experiences in in Spain or elsewhere? Well, it's making me think of how. The way that Madrid is set up really affects the way that these kids are raised and these families live. I mean, it's a large city. Something else I learned very quickly when I moved over there is they live in this collectivist society. So this idea of we're all here to help each other in some way. And I would tutor kids after school and I would go into their homes. Their homes are three-bedroom apartments. Most families, mm. their parents had a room and then each kid had their own room, which fit a twin bed, a dresser, and they had like an armoire and that was it. And and they would spend their weekends. They said that it was very lucky if you had a casa rural. So if you had like a country home outside of the city, um, because no one really lives in any of those rural towns anymore. Everyone lives in the cities now, uh, but they would go away on the weekends to be out in the countryside so that their kids could have space to, to play and run around. Wow. I love that whole notion of uh, boundaries. And so maybe we could follow up with Mike's question, which is really yep. a sort of cultural context mm -hmm. question. Uh, uh, Mike, you want to? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you, you taught in Spain. That was the first place you taught. Mm -hmm. And then you came back to the States for a period of time. And, and my understanding is then you were in a program. Am I remembering this correctly? I know the yes, name. Yes, the ACE program. Mm -hmm. And that place you were when you taught through that program. I was placed in Oakland, California. So in the East Bay, and I taught at a high school in Alameda. So it's really an island mm -hmm. off of the East Coast of the West Coast, the East Bay. Uh, and and even within the schools in that area, you could drive in 20, 20 mile direction and be in a very different demographic. Mm -hmm. um, but the important of importance of context for for schools really influences the way that we are going to teach the students, uh, what's socially acceptable, uh, what's important to them. Um, a lot of my students uh, were Asian American, so they had family that still lived in the Philippines or in uh, Vietnam. Um, so learning about like what are traditional foods and customs, uh, getting money given to me for Chinese New Year, that was kind of nice because mm. that was a, a custom over yeah. there. Um, 
and and also what the expectations are from their families in terms of their their learning. Uh, so a lot of those students uh, came from family homes where you respected your teachers and you took uh, care of your schoolwork, and they they just excelled and exceeded expectations, uh, which I think is just a different challenge as a teacher. It's how do you challenge students that are so willing to work and and want to impress and exceed expectations? It's almost you try to do the opposite where you try to give them a little bit of balance, right? It's okay if we don't spend all of this time. You don't have to spend so much outside of school, right? It's okay if you spend time with friends. Um, and then coming back to the East Coast and, and DeMatha, uh, a, a very different school context. And also the the difference in, on the West Coast, I was teaching more honors and AP classes, mm-hmm. different demographic of students. And then here I've taught more of the the regular classes. And so it's had to switch my switch my skills that I'm using, I think, uh, in terms of maybe motivating uh, these students in these regular classes think that they're not good at science because maybe they've been told that their whole lives or they just look at, hey, I got placed in this class, so I must not be very good at this. Mm. This isn't my thing. Uh, and so I think that they can become kind of apathetic and resistant towards learning because they they got placed in in these different classes. It's interesting you say that. I, I teach theology, and I think theology is the only department where we don't have honors classes. So I have this very interesting experience where there'll be one section you can tell by scheduling where all the students that are on uh, the kind of the uh, advanced placement track are. And I remember noticing, because I have all students you're right. There is this challenge between a student who might struggle academically and who's a high achiever. But one thing I think that sometimes the two extremes have in common is they're not ne- necessarily interested in learning. The mm-hmm. the ones interested in getting that 4.5, tell me what I need to do right. so I can get the 4.5. So on my college applications, I'll be competitive at school. And like you said, the other student, it just he might not know that he's interested in learning right. itself. So that challenge of going, hey, it's not about the the grade. It's about the content. There's something greater going on here. Um, it's something I, I experience with those different classes and with those different kids. Yeah, I think that one of the things I notice is how many kids view school as transactional mm-hmm. and uh, whether they are extremely good students or not is and that makes for an interesting way because I, I think that they, that's what they've been taught school is. I, I don't blame the kids for coming in and expect uh, having that that issue. Uh, we test them over and over again. There were times when I would read elementary school applications to DeMatha and I would weep because I'd look back at a kid's sixth, seventh, and eighth grade year and see they'd been standardized test 12 and 14 times. And what does that do to you when you get those numbers mm-hmm. back and you begin to think, okay, I'm whatever this number mm-hmm. right. says I am. Right. And the notion that you have passions and interests and that big ideas matter. I think that's another thing. We we often think that kids are so fragile that they don't want to talk about really important and mm. big issues, and they do. And I think we, the more we respect them doing that, the more they can grow. Was the school that you taught at in Alameda uh, an order-run school, or was it a diocesan school? It 
It was diocesan. It originally, so it originally, it's called St. Joseph Notre Dame High School. It was originally an all-boys school, so St. Joseph's, mm-hmm. and then Notre Dame was the all-girls school. And then they combined the two schools. Uh, and also what was interesting about the campus, talking about geography, uh, there was the all-girls school, which had the courtyard, the lower school, so like the K through 8 the basilica and then the all boys school so when they combined we had 15 minute passing periods to get from one building to the next because Mm. there was just a bit of a walk we closed down the street so that kids could go into the street and also that part was kind of nice because Mm -hmm. sunny california kids were just hanging out and chatting in 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 the street, but closed off street uh, in the sunshine, getting to chat with their friends. And it, I think it was truly more of this break in between classes rather than I have to rush to get to my next school. It sounds very nice Yeah, <laughs> to have that, that period between classes. I taught in California for a year and I remember I was, the campus, there was no hallways, right? You had these, I don't know if your campus was like this, but these individual rooms. Mm-hmm. And so there was this kind of vibe between classes. It's sunny outside. We're going to kind of kick it. Um, I don't know. I, I like that pace versus this frenetic pace that I need to sprint to my next class um, throughout six hours that day. Right. I know that uh, even though I think we have very short passing periods here and we used to have even shorter, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll recall, but it takes a little bit of time. If I have a kid coming from uh, Travers class or Curran's class and he's wound up about some issue they've been talking about uh, or coming from Caroline's class, and they're really thinking about that, I can't expect them immediately to transition into the things that I need to do. And I I think a more generous passing period actually gives a kid time to let some of what he's learned settle, right, and then come to a new place. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it goes back to that transactional idea. Mm -hmm. What is education? Mm -hmm. We just check in off these boxes, get run to your next class, get more information, get more information. Mm -hmm. But that big question of the formation of the human person. And Caroline, when you were talking, it it made me wonder, um, someone who was formational in your life as a teacher, can you think of a teacher that was the one that comes to mind that maybe when you're teaching, you model yourself after, or um, they really impacted you in a way that you found to be formational beyond just the information in the classroom Mm -hmm. the teacher that i commonly think of is actually one of the ones that i taught with uh her name was bea that's another thing also is that in in spain all of the kids called the student the teachers by their first name so it was no like miss tatnall it was just bea and there didn't feel like any sort of disrespect because that was just the norm um but I think something that she taught me, she held them to high expectations, but she also allowed for a little bit of chaos because I think that that just felt like the norm. And and being able to recognize that she was working with fifth and sixth graders, so they're 10 and 11 years old. Uh, and yes, she wants them to excel and and get their job done, but also allow for relationships and connections and and I also think some of the customs and cultures allow them to do that a little bit better, just in terms of, for example, their ability to um, be more physically just in each other's space. Um, if it was a kid's birthday, you could hug and kind of like kiss them on the cheeks. Um, and, and especially, too, I think with that that lower those lower ki- those lower levels, they want that kind of like physical touch to be comforted. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. I 
I got to spend 21 days in Japan as part of a Fulbright and Mm -hmm. uh, spent several days in an elementary school in a second grade classroom. Mm -hmm. Uh, What a revelation. Uh, First of all, the, the kids served themselves lunch. They People would bring up this big pot of rice and uh, a smaller pot of stew. And then there were six kids different every day. They put on white chef's gowns and they would ladle out to their mm-hmm. classmates. And then at the end of lunch, they had what they called osoji, honorable cleaning. There was uh-huh. a crew that was assigned to do that. So the kids expected to take care of that. And there was this movement around lots of tactile lots of touch right some of them would come up and just hold on to the teacher's garment mm-hmm. for a couple of minutes and then walk away it was and they they loved when you would read to them or mm-hmm. anything and when you would read to them you know they gather around you and you have kids basically you know crawling on your or leaning over your shoulder or mm-hmm. holding on to you while you're doing that mm-hmm. it was an extraordinary and uh wonderful uh, experience I think it creates this sense of trust and comfort that uh, that allows for better teaching and learning. I think sometimes we we fear too much that kids will quote get out of control, and mm-hmm. that is it. So that leads to the, a kind of hyper vigilance or a kind of structure that actually damages the right. the relationships. I think that's the that can be the negative part of that. Yeah, you're right. And there's that balance. I, I like to create a little bit of chaos in my class. Mm-hmm. I like to throw grenades into the conversation on a regular basis. And it does sometimes, I always say, guys, we get too loose. <laughs> we get too loose. And if we get too loose, we can't play like this. If you want to play like this, you got to know where the line is. Right. And they, they learn it after a while. And there's some days that, like yesterday, the sun was out. That last period was crazy. Mm-hmm. They were so hyped because it was sunny yeah. and it was an early dismissal. And I'm going, oh, my goodness, the energy yeah. here is already right. palatable. Right. Um, well, that sense of play is really important. And But play without any boundaries is not play no. anymore, right? right? All play requires some sense yeah. of. What are the rules of the game and yeah. what are we doing? And, and they pick up on that. I think they really appreciate that. Right, right. You know, something funny that happened yesterday. I mean, something that I have s- expressed to friends and I think also coworkers, teaching all boys, especially freshmen, but really all the grade levels. Your expectations of what what's behaviorally acceptable, I think, just has to look a little different. It's not going to be a quiet classroom. It's not going to be a perfectly, they're going to all sit still classroom. That's just impossible. It's not going to happen. Uh, and then sometimes they do things that are so funny. For example, they were doing some individual work and one of them will start singing, and then quite literally, the entire class, if they know the song, will join it. So they'll all be singing the same song. And I, I, I don't even really say anything about it because I find that to be funny. Yeah. And also, it's kind of sweet. It's endearing. And it's harmless, right? Joyous. And it, it, there's a sense of joy there. Yeah. And hopefully, they feel like there's a sense of community that they have built if they're if they're all singing the same song I think in uh, class together. <laughs> you know, there's a level of vulnerability which shows that you've made that a safe because boys are mm-hmm. hesitant to be vulnerable like mm-hmm. that. And that's a really cool Yeah, that's a good point. If they if they have the ability to do that, that means that they're comfortable. Yeah. So there's something that you're doing yeah. that goes, Hey, we can do this and the teacher's not gonna chastise us. Yeah. They're actually gonna appreciate it. Um 
I was going to say, do we want to? Yeah, I wanted to do that. First days, the first days were, or kind of moments, even. We're kind of coming to the end of our time, and one of the questions we always ask is um, that first day of teaching or that first moment of teaching. It doesn't have to be right away, but what is something that jumps out in your mind, either the good, the bad, and the ugly, about the first time you taught? Just complete imposter syndrome, for sure. Thinking you've gotten over that. I still deal with that every day. I'm too young for this. They're going to see right through me. I remember being terrified that they were going to either know more than me for some reason or that the fear of them asking questions that you don't know the answer to, that you should know the answer to. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I think of that Michael Scott quote from The Office where he says, you know, sometimes I start a sentence and I don't know how I'm going to finish it. <laughs> and I also think, that happens sometimes in teaching, right? You, your thought just mm-hmm. trails off or you think, I really hope I know where I'm going to go with this by the, by the end. Um, and the only way to gain experience is just to have those first moments. Yeah. I think that's a great. And fake it, right? You have to completely right. fake it. You have to pretend like you know what you're doing. I mean, in Spain, it was a little bit different because they were younger. So I felt like I could... I felt a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. older than them. In California, it was online. So that was interesting, but still kind of terrifying because what am I supposed to do with these kids who are across a a screen from me? And then here, my first class was a chemistry class. So that was a junior level class. And some of our kids look old. They look like adults. And I remember thinking, it's going to be okay, but I'm going to have to pretend like I'm not a little scared right now. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a little terrified of them. <laughs> Fortunately, uh, I feel like here the first day, they're pretty quiet. It's maybe about three or four weeks in that they start to test boundaries and loosen up a little bit. And then and then I feel like I have to be really on my toes. Yeah. Well, thank you. Incidentally, imposter syndrome, I'm not sure it ever completely yeah. goes away. and. To this day, I started a lot of sentences that I'm not positive where they're going to end up by the time. But thank you so much, Caroline. This has just been a wonderful treat for thank you for having uh, me. for us, and uh, we're so happy uh, part of the math community. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Caroline. It was a great time together, and uh, everyone who's listening out there, we hope you're having again a. I guess it could still a good start to the new year. I don't know if we could still call it the new year. And we look forward to talking to you again in another two weeks. Thank you.